Time Chronicles. Hello and good day, everyone. Boy, it has been quite a while since I created a podcast for you. I think the last one was in November, if memory serves. You know, I always have the best intentions of putting out at least one podcast a month, but work and other responsibilities have kept me away for far too long. I hope you'll forgive me. Since my last podcast, I have left my former company, Kroll, and started my own business, which I call Rockridge Forensics. I do computer and cell phone forensic analysis, consulting, training, a little data recovery for people who have lost pictures, documents, and other files due to a hard drive failure, and I also provide expert testimony in the field of computer forensics. I really enjoyed the people I worked with at Kroll, and the company treated me very well. However, the work itself was just not a perfect fit for me. Kroll investigates large computer intrusion cases with hundreds, if not thousands, of computers at risk. In these cases, you can't examine every single computer in an enterprise. It would be cost prohibitive and would take far too long to complete a case. I prefer smaller cases where I can investigate the contents of the entire computer or cell phone. It allows me to dig deeper into hidden Windows artifacts and deleted content to find evidence and in most cases identify an actual bad guy or help exonerate an innocent person. In any case, I'm enjoying running and growing my own business. I'm sure many of you have heard about the toddler along the highway case that's in the news. Well, I'd like to take a moment and recognize the excellent work by police officers and detectives in Hoover, Alabama, for their work on that case. On July 13th, Carly Russell made a 911 call to police saying she saw a young toddler walking along a highway. Shortly thereafter, while still talking to the 911 operator, she screamed and nothing more was heard. The police found her car running and her cell phone inside. Two days later, Ms. Russell shows up at her home and provides a highly implausible story of being kidnapped, escaping, kidnapped again, and escaping again, only to be seen walking down the sidewalk to her home on July 15th. Now I could talk for an hour about how and why the story appeared made up to me, and I'm guessing pretty much every law enforcement officer on the planet as well. But the investigation does highlight the importance of cell phone forensics. In his first press conference, the chief of the Hoover Police Department, Chief Durzis, I hope I pronounced that right, provided a glimpse into why the story was most likely false. Forensic examiners probably obtained an extraction of the cell phone's contents soon after its recovery. By examining the internet history, they found that Miss Russell searched for the movie Taken, which documented a highly skilled father trying to rescue his daughter from kidnappers in France. Additionally, Ms. Russell was found to have searched for Amber Alerts, also a very unusual search considering her statements about a toddler walking along this interstate. I applaud the forensic examiners for their quick examination and compilation of these important internet artifacts related specifically to the case. I'm also impressed that Chief Durzis released that information in his first press conference. His sharing of the examination results quickly helped the public realize this story was false and kept it from growing into a copy of the ridiculously overblown Jesse Smollett fiasco. In fact, yesterday, an attorney spokesperson for Ms. Russell verified that the entire story was fabricated. I suspect that as the investigation continues, we'll get to hear about additional evidence that was discovered during the analysis of the phone. It appears that Ms. Russell has some issues to deal with, and I hope she finds the help she needs to get better. She may also face criminal charges. 
Okay, let's get into today's main story. I thought I'd share a case I worked on quite a while ago, but I think you'll find it interesting. I think it contains a good reminder as well for making strong passwords and not using them with more than one account. We had a subject. I'll refer to him as John Muhammad, a citizen of Jordan, who was using a well-known hacking method for stealing credit card numbers and money through the use of the Internet. The method was called SQL Injection, pronounced SQL Injection. At the time of this crime, the SQL injection method was 10 years old and, I would have thought, not very successful anymore due to improved software and other safety measures to protect websites. But what we found out is that some websites were still very susceptible to SQL injection. So what is SQL injection? SQL injection is an attack against an application that uses an SQL or SQL database. Okay, what's a SQL database? For the sake of this discussion, a SQL database is similar to an Excel spreadsheet, but much more advanced. They're comprised of cells, rows, like a spreadsheet, but they're also made up of tables. All of these tables contain different information, but they're all related to one another through a primary key which links them together. It's what we refer to as a relational database. We said earlier that SQL injection hacking was an attack against an application. An application is also known as a program. For our purposes, and how this attack was being used, websites contain SQL databases to store a lot of different data. The application, or program, runs on the website and keeps the SQL databases open and accessible to regular users. Two of the programs to create and maintain SQL databases are Microsoft SQL and MySQL. One of the more frequent uses of an SQL or SQL database is for a member or customer list. Here's an example. Say you have a restaurant and you have a website to advertise your menu and other interesting information about your restaurant. You want to use the website to increase your business, so you offer the ability for people to sign up for a newsletter, which also provides discounts for food and beverages. All a person has to do is sign up for an account with a username and password. The username must be an email address, which is very common in today's world. Every month, the restaurant sends out the newsletter to its members. A member can also log into their account on the website to change their profile at any time. The restaurant gets hundreds of people to sign up for their newsletter, and all is good. There's one problem, though. The restaurant does not have a full-time IT person to take care of their computer network or their website and perform maintenance and software updates. Therefore, the restaurant website has bugs in the SQL software, and they don't even know it. One of those bugs, which is also called a vulnerability, will allow a person to use the SQL injection technique to access and view the members list without having a password. This is a bad thing. Without getting too technical, this is how it works. The hacker will attempt to log into the SQL database containing the members list by use of a common username, most likely admin at restaurant.com or administrator at restaurant.com or whatever the restaurant's name was. He wants to log in as the administrator account because they usually have the highest access and can do the most stuff. He doesn't have the administrator's password, however, because he doesn't have the administrator's password, however, because there is a bug in the SQL software. He doesn't have the administrator's passwords. However, because there is a bug in the SQL software, all he has to do to get in is type in a true statement. 
A true statement would be something like 1 plus 1 equals 2. This is a very big oversimplification, and it's a little more complicated than that. But due to the bug in the software, the SQLite database accepts the true statement as the password and allows the bad guy to log in. So you might be thinking, so what? He has access to a restaurant's membership list. What the heck's he going to do with that? Well, I'll tell you what he's going to do with that. He's going to take those email addresses and passwords that he's just stolen, and he's going to visit bankofamerica.com and citibank.com and wellsfargo.com and a number of other banks. And he's going to attempt to use the email addresses and passwords he just obtained to log into the bank websites. As many of you know, people reuse their passwords all the time. They just don't want to have to remember a bunch of passwords, which, of course, I understand, but this is a very bad practice. And in this case, the hacker was able to log in to one out of every 20 accounts he tried. Well, Mark, how much could he have gotten? It's only one website's customer list, right? Nope. He did this to a lot of websites. In total, he obtained over $300,000 through this 10-year-old hacking method. Additionally, he obtained credit card numbers that were linked to many of those bank accounts. He used some of the stolen credit cards to purchase airline tickets, which he sold to friends and family. He also sent those credit card numbers to other people in his criminal gang. The forensic analysis on his computer yielded a plethora of information. I found several other companies that had fallen victim to the SQL injection hack. We contacted a couple of those companies, and many of them did not even know their information was compromised. I also found a large number of credit card numbers, passwords, usernames, and other personally identifiable information in deleted space and temporary memory. Of most interest to me was how the gang was communicating. They were aware that law enforcement could obtain subpoenas and search warrants to obtain their emails that were sent back and forth between conspirators. So, instead of emailing the stolen credit card numbers to each other, they all used one Yahoo email account and address. Instead of sending an email, they would simply compose a draft of the email containing all the stolen credit card numbers. The other conspirators would then just log into the same email account and access the card numbers. They would then delete the draft email, so they never actually sent anything over the internet back and forth that could be tracked. Not a bad idea. They would then just delete the draft email. At the conclusion of our investigation, the gang members were all convicted of one crime or another. Mr. Muhammad was literally arrested as he was sitting on a plane getting ready to fly back to his home country. I don't remember the exact sentence he received, but it was approximately 10 years. Internet and website security has gotten better in recent years, folks. IT personnel and companies in general make security a much higher priority than it used to be. Policies for changing passwords every 90 days and adding numbers and letters to passwords, along with dual-factor or multi-factor authentication, have made systems much more secure. Hackers still find ways into systems, either through zero-day software vulnerabilities or simply using social engineering schemes. As users of the Internet, just be aware you can avoid getting hacked. Use antivirus software, change your passwords frequently, use multi-factor authentication and never, ever call a number that pops up on your computer screen indicating that you have a virus. I guarantee that's not a virus. Well, that's all for today, folks. I sure hope you enjoyed the podcast. I'll keep trying to provide interesting content in a timely manner in the future. Now, if you have suggestions, ideas for a show, or comments, 
send them to computercrimechronicles at gmail.com. Take care.